Juliet Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 183 of Dogcast Radio. Today we have essential advice on a situation we all encounter. How to thwart an off-leash dog rushing you and your dog. If I feel like it's necessary, um, I'll sometimes look at my dog and point and say, She's contagious! (laughs) (laughs) She's not. (sighs) It is a little white lie, but it, it keeps the other dog away. Sneaky, huh? But it works. More effective advice like that later on. But before that, we have equally vital information about a new cutting-edge treatment for arthritis. This is something that's extremely timely for me, as, by coincidence, soon after I started looking into the disease, Buddy was diagnosed with it. I wish I had known more earlier on, but I'm educating myself on the subject now, and I want to share that information with you. Today I'm talking to Greg McGarrell. Hi, Greg. Hi there. Hi. And we're going to talk about Nupsala. I was recommended this by uh, Hannah from uh, Canine Arthritis uh, Management. And she said she described it as mind-blowing. And having looked into it, I can quite see what she meant. So tell me a little bit about the treatment that you offer. Here at Nupsala, it's not one treatment. It's a range of treatments. We're a biopharmaceutical company. And I've been doing this now for about 17 years. Mm. It all started for me at the Royal Veterinary College where I had the pleasure of working with a, a number of professors, but uh, the, the two that really stood out for me were Professor Roger Smith, who's the equine professor, equine orthopedic professor, uh, and Professor Alan Goodship, uh, who's also an orthopedics uh, professor at, at the Royal Veterinary College. And in 2001, we were the first group to embark on the use of stem cells in the treatment of tendon injuries in horses. And I think it was probably one of the very first, dare I say, clinical cases where stem cells were used clinically, not in research, were actually put into a patient that had a disease uh, that obviously needed a cure. And back then, that cure was tendon injuries in horses. And we realized that a lot of these musculoskeletal um, conditions that are affecting your tendons, ligaments, bone, cartilage, etc., are very much brought about through just daily wear and tear, daily fatigue. We encounter damage every time we go and do something. Um, We go for a run or we do silly things like climb up mountains or stuff like that and we all come back, we're all aching and feeling the, the wear and tear of the activity that we've just done. Well, to the body, that's not a problem. It can heal the damage that you've done. So a little bit of a muscle tear or a little bit of damage to the cartilage because you were jumping up and down or uh, that little bit of a tendon tweak because you wanted to sprint that little bit faster. The body's capable of healing that on its own. But two things happen. As we get older, our ability to heal decreases. And that's why we get older. Um, The other problem that we've got is if you continue to do the activity, the body kind of doesn't get a chance to catch up. So it it would only heal 80% of the damage that you did yesterday. Mm. And if you do that every day repetitively, it's what's called cumulative fatigue damage. Now, we see it in everyday life, uh, repetitive strain. We're seeing it today with keyboard injuries, people who type a lot, um, how you get uh, joint changes in your fingers. 
how athletes, footballers, get it in their tendons, their Achilles tendons or their knees. Um, 40-year-old men who take up running because it's all a bit too late and that little beer belly starting to show. Um, the, the knee starts to hurt because yeah. it's not got a chance to catch up. So what we at Nupsala have effectively for the last sort of 17 years is unlocked is understanding how the body breaks down understands how the body heals itself or what is missing so what has happened what has deteriorated to the point that it needs to be replaced so we've developed a range of biologics and the biologics typically work with the body's own healing mechanism so yes we work with stem cells and that's quite a lot in the news these days about how we work with stem cells and we've been doing that for for many many years and we either use that from the the horse or the dog obviously we're veterinary not human Mm -hmm. uh, horse or dog's bone marrow or its fat tissue because we can get stem cells out of fat and we can get stem cells out of bone marrow and we can use those to influence and control damaged tissue regeneration so like if it's a tendon um, we would use stem cells to help regrow that damaged tendon. So we're not replacing the tendon. All the body is trying to do is trying to heal that damage, and it's actually trying to heal the damage with its own stem cells. The problem you've got is just not enough. So what we can do is we can take fat or bone marrow out of the body, grow the cells in the laboratory, because once they're outside the body, they amplify, they grow in number. They don't do it inside the body, they do it outside the body. Because the body controls how many cells are going on. And then we've got the ability to put them into the site of injury. And they kind of get used up in exactly the same way the body's using those cells, but it's almost like the reserve cavalry coming to the aid of a fight. It's like, oh, thank God, more cells. Great, over here, guys. <laughs> and the cells get to work on regenerating that damaged tissue. Because if they don't, if we didn't put those cells there, what would happen is it would scar And scar tissue, the body loves making scar tissue. (laughs) The problem with scar tissue is it's dysfunctional. It's just a, it's a filler. It's a polyfiller. Okay. Mm. In so many terms. Um, so the body doesn't like holes, so it will scar. We've all seen scars. We've seen them on, you know, if you have the the unfortunate, you know, accident, you end up scarring your skin, you would see the scar. Um, that scar tissue is a fibrous version of skin. So, of course, it's not elastic. It doesn't move and look like skin. It's just fibrous tissue. Um, That's quite obvious. And the body can do that throughout the body. So if it was a tendon, it would fibrose it. Uh, And that also goes all the way into the joint as well. So no matter what tissue, um, it has the ability to scar it. So moving forward from the stem cells, we also have the ability to work with things that are in our blood. Now, a really interesting area of development has been uh, the use of platelets. So if you cut yourself, everybody kind of knows that when you cut yourself, a clot forms, and that clot kind of is the healing mechanism to the cut. And your mum always told you, don't pick the scab. Um, Well, when you think about it, what formed that scab? So it's that almost like fibrous network. Um, which which creates and that healing goes on underneath it doesn't it mm, mm. and if you don't touch it and you're very good then obviously the, the healing underneath takes place a lot better than if you were to disrupt it so we all know that scarring is worse if you keep picking that scab off yeah. because healing is trying to take place underneath it now all those healing properties 
are a result of a wonderful little thing called a platelet. Hmm. Now, we most people understand that platelets are there to help your blood clot if it was an accident or whatever. And that's part of its job, absolutely. But within the platelet, there is a... It's almost like a little burst. It's almost like a, a pomegranate. Think of a platelet a bit like a pomegranate. Mm. And inside the pomegranate are those seeds, and those seeds are the growth factors. Now, these growth factors are like little signals, little protein signals that make things happen. So they can encourage tissue to grow. They can encourage new blood supply to occur. They can recruit new cells to an area. They can also stimulate cells to multiply and create new tissue. So it's what we call anabolic. So it can actually grow. Now, again, if we were to take blood from a patient, harvest out the platelets and concentrate them, we can then deliver those platelets to an area of damage. And all those little signals will start to get to work where regeneration or repair needs to happen or most likely is an area where there's lack of blood supply. So the lack of blood supply could just be the, the anatomy where it is. Um, some ligaments have a very poor blood supply or where healing is really slow. Um, and again, that's often, often because of the lack of blood supply to an area. And the platelet can be used to stimulate a new blood supply to that area or where there is lack of blood because we can't get those, those growth factors to the area to encourage healing. Just by putting them into that area, overcomes that, that, that hurdle that we had. And those growth factors can get to work and stimulate the healing. So in medical terms, it's called platelet-rich plasma, PRP, platelet-rich plasma. So whether we're working with stem cells or we're working with growth factors or we're working with other proteins in the body, what we're trying to do is modify the disease. So from the very early stage, we're trying to counteract inflammation which is obviously very painful. We're then trying to reverse damage where it's obviously stalled or it's not healing very well or the extent of the damage is so great, the body just needs a helping hand. And we can influence that by putting the cellular material into that area to help it regenerate and help it grow again. And then we kind of hit the limit when we've gone too far. Hmm. So... One area which we're very, very active at the moment is uh, canine joint disease. Yeah. So dog joint disease, dog arthritis. Um, the problem that we encounter is the understanding of what arthritis is um, and when it starts. So everybody thinks arthritis is that horrible end stage where you can't move, yeah. where the joint is immobilized. Or if you looked at an x-ray, it looks nothing like the joint it should do. It looks like all sorts of things have grown in the wrong place. Unfortunately for us, when it gets to that stage, there's not much we can do. Um, because I can't regenerate what's not there. I can't change the remodeling. Yeah. Um, I can't, once the bone has started to change to that extent, I can't reverse that. So when it comes to biologics, um, our best place is at the early stages. So early indication, early identification will enable us to do a lot more and hopefully either hold the disease in status, so it's not going to get any worse, and in some cases reverse it. So we're not going to go down that slippy slope. Yeah. So 
there's a lot we can do inside a joint if we get to it early enough. But all too often, we're presented with cases that are, are far too gone. So if we looked at arthritis in a grading sense, uh, one could grade it from, say, grade one to grade five. Um, one would be, you could all, you, there'd be nothing to see on an x-ray. But the joint is obviously painful. Um, it's the sort of thing that athletes get when they've been training really, really hard and they know there's something going on because it's painful. But there's nothing, nothing you could see on any imaging. And that's really the, the, the joint, the soft tissues of the joint, the joint capsule, the, the synovium, what we call it, is, is painful and it's under attack, it's inflamed. And the problem with that is if it, if it goes untreated and goes on for a very long time, the nature of the inflammation will cause it to degrade even further. So, and it's not always this way, but just to help people understand, yes. is that soft tissue, that, that nice lining of the joint is the, the kind of the, the gatekeeper to what's going on. It helps restore function. It produces the joint fluid. It helps producing its own anti-inflammatory proteins to help block the inflammation that's there. The joint does this itself, which is quite interesting. Yeah. But as soon as that tissue gets damaged, it loses that capability. It loses its own capability to try and restore function. And kind of the next tissue that's in line is the cartilage. And that starts to degrade. And that cartilage is there as a shock absorber. Um, it relies on joint fluid because cartilage doesn't have its own blood supply. It takes its own nutrients from the joint fluid. And the joint fluid is produced by the soft tissues. So again, if you go backwards, once those soft tissues stop producing all that quality uh, material, then everything starts to suffer. It's a slippy slope yeah. all the way down. Yeah. So then our cartilage starts to suffer, and our cartilage is our shock absorbers, um, and cartilage takes a very, very long time to regrow, a very long time. Um, and in some cases, once you start to lose cartilage, you're not really going to get it back. Mm. Um, and then the real hard bit is, once we then start to lose our cartilage, our shock absorbing uh, mechanism is starting to deteriorate, the bone then starts to come into effect. And the bone can be stimulated in lots of ways, but it starts to remodel. And we start to get calcification, we start to get bony spurs, it starts to change the shape of itself. And that's all because of the damage that's going on. So it is the slippy slope all the way down from a grade one to a grade five. And when we look at a grade five, the joint capsule, the synovium, it had a really hard time. Um, a lot of it is damaged. A lot of it is now that fibrous material that doesn't really function. Um, the cartilage most likely is all gone. We've got bone on bone. Um, and bone on bone is really painful. And our bone has started to remodel. And because it's painful, the dog then doesn't use the limb like it should do. It starts compensating. It starts putting its weight onto other legs. Then we start to get muscle wastage on the leg that it was unpainful. And then we lose all that muscle and then recovery is so, so slow. Mm. So like I said, the longer we leave it, the harder it gets. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we get this where arthritis is seen as a old dog disease. Yep. Far yep. from it. Far, far from it. 
Um, we've been presented with dogs as early as less than a year old with joint disease. Okay, it can affect any dog at any age. Um, so not, it's not a symptom of getting old, and it's not something that should be accepted. But I think more often people look at their dog and go, "He's stiff. He's not. He's not. Yeah. He's not lame. He's stiff." Yeah. Well, stiff is a sign of pain. You know, your dog can't say, "You know, Dad, my my hip really hurts today. Can we not go for a walk?" Mm. Or that bed that you thought was really good feels like concrete. Yeah. You know, or the the slippy floor that I've got to run to to get to the door. Well, that just really hurt my bad hip. Mm. Dogs can't say it. they're a very stoic animal. They've got a very yes. good way of hiding their pain. And the other one that people often say goes, oh, he's only stiff indoors, but when I take him out for a walk, he kind of loosens up a bit and he's fine. Yeah. Well, exercise is pain relief. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you will actually get a bit of endorphin kick. You will get a little bit of excitement kicking in. And that exercise is actually more about a pain relief. Mm-hmm. But pain relief doesn't make the disease go away. Yeah. So people look at pain and they go, well, if I give him a painkiller, then the disease isn't there. That's like me covering my eyes and thinking the boogeyman doesn't exist. <laughs> now, don't frighten me. He doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. So just because you're masking the symptom or you're taking a lemsip thinking your cold has gone away. No, the cold is still there. Yeah. The symptom yeah. has now gone away, but the, 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 the affliction is still there. It's the same with arthritis. A painkiller is not a treatment for the disease. It's a treatment for the symptom. Mm-hmm. And the disease if it goes untreated, will progress. Mm. And that's one of the big problems that we have is that people don't understand the disease and its progressive nature. So the disease progresses because of inflammation, not because of pain. Mm. So when we give a dog an anti-inflammatory, typically uh, what we call a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, um, they are very good pain relievers. And they do have capability of being anti-inflammatory, but they don't block all the inflammation. They only block part of the inflammation, which means that disease has the ability to carry on progressing. And it will normally progress to the point where you need to up the dosage or change to a stronger one or add another pain med. Uh, And all too often we get dogs coming to us with multiple pain meds, multiple tablets. They're trying to treat the entire body where it's that one joint or two joints that are very painful. Yeah. And we're trying to treat the entire body to get to those two elbows. So what we do is we take the fight to the disease. Mm. And we use the body's own mechanism. We understand what's going on. And we use the body's own mechanism to heal the problem and try and reverse the problem. Yeah, it is. It's mind-blowing. Hannah was right. This is mind-blowing. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating. And I love the fact, as you say, that you use... The body's mechanism, you know, this isn't sort of some... Um, it's not a miracle. It's not a miracle. Well, no, but it's also not, you know, a lot of... Uh, I hear a lot from, from sort of my circle of, of friends, you know, oh, it's not natural, don't use that, it's not natural. Mm. And, and yep. you think, but this, this is, you, you couldn't get more natural, the source of this. This is what the body does, we're just helping the body do it better and longer. All it is is massive shortcut. Yeah. So, yeah. so if we look at our stem cells, stem cells sit in uh, the body in different places. Our body tries to re- regenerate every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do that every day. Um, but like I said, we just slow down. And what we're trying to do is use the cells it's got, amplify it, concentrate it, and deliver it to the site of injury. Because the problem with the injury is it's normally too great 
for the body to deal with what it can do locally. Yeah. It just needs to recruit, yeah. it's trying to recruit help. And in fact, the body does that. There's a, a process called chemotaxis, which is like a little beacon that goes off. Mm. That when you've got an injury, it's like, help me, help me, help me. And all the cells pick up on this and they migrate to that site of injury. And in the early stage of the disease, that's quite a strong signal. And as we get into the latter stage of the disease, it sort of turns off. Mm. And that's one of the other problems. Once that signal starts to die down, we get into the chronic phase of the disease, it doesn't get the help it needs. Mm. So that nasty inflammation kind of gets away with it. Yeah. Just when it needs it most, the signal goes... When it, exactly. Uh, yeah. Just when it needs it most, the signal dies off. Oh. So without the signal, all we then do is concentrate and deliver it in a bolus to the site of injury. Mm. I mean, it's mums. What you're saying rings true very much for me because um, my Labrador, who's 14, was diagnosed with um, arthritis in his front right paw. I, you see, I didn't even know you could, you could just have arthritis. You know, I, I thought it would affect you generally. I didn't realise you could, could, could be very, very specific to that degree. You know, I, th- I thought it was a right paw. You know, he'd injured himself somehow walking or running or, mm. you know. Um, so I, I didn't realise that. Again, I was guilty of thinking it's it's just an older dog thing, and I thought it was inevitable that he was going to slow down anyway. So those those little you know flags along the way where I could have I mean for example, we we stopped putting him in the boot because I I realised I didn't want him to stress his joints. I didn't want him join, jumping in and out. So he's he's sort of been with a, with using a harness in the main car, um, which was less jarring to his his body. And again, I. If at that point I'd thought, do you know what, I'm just going to go and get him actually checked out and make sure, do we need to start doing some treatment? I didn't even realise there was a treatment you could do. This is why I desperately wanted to talk to you and put this information out there. You know, I, I, I just was unaware this was there. And if I'd known all this, you know, yes, I might well have gone to the vet and gone, do you know what, he is slowing down. What can we do about this? What treatments can we look at that will help him um, before we get to the stage you're, you're describing? Yeah, and... What we're dealing with is an education. Yes, um, yeah. I'm having to educate a lot of the veterinary profession about this. So I've recently collaborated with uh, a couple of academics and like-minded people to form a organization called the Veterinary Osteoarthritis Alliance, uh, the VOA. And we are really trying to spearhead this change in, in attitude and change in approach to osteoarthritis that rather than taking a hands-off approach, get a hands-on approach, mm-hmm. is that non-steroidals are effective, but they're not the answer. Yeah. They're part of the answer. They're not the answer. Mm-hmm. This disease, like you said, there can affect the whole body, multiple joints, single joints. Yeah. It yeah. can also affect the soft tissue. It can affect tendons and ligaments way before it gets to a joint. Mm-hmm. There could be an injury, a trauma, an accident. All of these things could be the, the precursor to uh, you know, a, a bigger disease coming in. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to say is that we need to understand what the body's trying to do, what's going on inside the joint, understand the biology, mm-hmm. and try and figure out your treatment strategy to slow down or reverse what's happening or what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I think we've got into a, a sort of a complacent situation where we will use painkillers to mask the symptom mm. until the stage it's advanced so great that the only solution that's left available to us is joint surgery. Yeah. 
and then we have to get really invasive. You know, and we're we're replacing hips and we're replacing elbows. Or what I hate to see is you know where amputation then starts to come into uh, the equation where we lose a leg. Um, you think, well, what could we've done? And I, I say this to all the vets that we work with and, and, and teach. Every dog that's euthanized because of arthritis, we've got to understand where it went wrong. Yes. Where did we go wrong? How did this disease get to the stage where it beat us? Mm. And it is a, a, it's an interesting fact because it is a disease. Lameness and arthritis is a disease. And, you know, it's a dirty word to use, but it is a disease. Yeah. If your dog had diabetes, you'd be on it. You'd be taking your insulin, you'd be monitoring your diet, monitoring your exercise, you'd be going back for regular checks. But there's something about arthritis, you go, be fine. Um, If it was heart disease or if it had a virus, it's going to die. All these things are diseases that are very important and urgent in your mind. But arthritis is a bit of a silent killer. It creeps up on you. Yeah, yeah. 20% of the dogs in our country have arthritis, 20%. There's about 1.7 million dogs with arthritis. And speaking to Professor Stuart Carmichael, who I collaborate with, he said, no, Greg, actually, it's, it's a bit more than that. It's about 40%. Wow. And I didn't, I didn't really get what he, under, he was trying to say. And it was a real uh, eye-opener for me. He said, you've got the 20% of the dogs that have it right now. But don't forget, Greg, there are breeds that are predisposed to this or the stuff that the, the owner is doing with them. So if they do agility, if they do fly ball, if they do working dogs, police dogs, army dogs, those sort of dogs, where work will accelerate cumulative damage. Mm-hmm. You take those dogs that haven't got the arthritis yet, they're predisposed to it. Yeah. So you've got 20% with it and 20% that are going to get it. Yeah. They are going to get it. So yeah. you've got this 40% of dogs are either not yet got it but you will get it, or those that have now got it. Yeah. It's a staggering statistic. And I think it's the, the big area where it affects us as dog owners, because we all love our dogs, and I get it all the time where it's, it's, it's not going to kill the dog. So it's, it's a very traumatic disease because you have to live with it day in, day out. Yes, yeah. And you can manage it. That's what it's about. It's about managing the dog. But it really does change your bond and your relationship to your dog. You want to take it for a walk. You want to take it out on a run with you, take it to the beach. But it's heartbreaking yeah. when you can't. Yes. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking when, you know, they see other dogs playing and your dog is sat there going, I, I can't play. Yeah. Too painful yeah. for me to play. Yeah. But yeah. you go, well, he's, he's only seven. And then you start thinking, you start going, well, how long have we got left? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, probably about 12. So you go, well, we've got another, you know, five, six years of this. Mm. Five, six years of... You know, our dog who we love to bits, but actually we can't really do much with. And I, I think that's the most rewarding part for me is that when we get these cases and we work with vets, we, we, we don't work with the public, we work with the vets. So they come to us and say, how do we go and treat this? The reward that we get when we see dogs that are literally at the point of euthanizing, literally at the point where the owners are giving up, and we go, no, don't worry, there's a solution. We can inject these. So our products, um, like I say, some are biologic, some are synthetic. We do have a synthetic um, implant, which we inject into joints as well, that kind of replaces what's going on. So it's, it's a gel-like substance that stays inside the joint and enables it to move, and it doesn't break down. It stays in the joint for over two or three years. Wow. So 
our end stage dogs, we think, oh, we're at the end. You know, he's, he's seven years old. His hips are really bad. What can we do? There are solutions now. So we can inject these joints. And the, the turnaround is a dog that can't walk to a dog that's running around a field again. Yes, yeah. Tell me about Sorrel, because her, the video on your site is, again, just amazing. Yeah, so Sorrel, Sorrel had a bit of a history. So she ended up having um, stifle surgery um, and lots of other things going on. And the problem that she got was her hind limb problems made her really throw her weight forward. So when we look at a dog, a dog is 60% in its forelegs and 40% on its hind legs. That's its weight distribution. Mm. So it works on a 30, 30, 15, 15. So if they stood nice and square, that's how the weight of a dog goes. But when it's got a hind limb problem, it'll try and throw its weight forward. So it's, it's getting its weight off its hind. Now that starts to stimulate further and more accelerated wear and tear. Mm. So this whole thing's a link, there's a chain event. So Sorrel started to develop arthritis in her, her digits, her, her, her paws, mm. so on her feet. And it's an incredibly painful situation. I mean, if you can imagine yourself, if your big toe or little toe hurt, you really couldn't walk. Yeah. You know, every stride you took, you would try and make a stride such that your foot didn't come into contact. And that was the situation with Sorrel. So she was very, very painful, and it didn't really matter what pain medication she was on. It was just not enough. The pain was so great that it was not enough. So we looked at it and the, the clinic in London came to us and we, we examined what was going on inside the joint. And we realized that it was probably too late and it was too late to use a biologic. We couldn't really reverse what had happened. Um, and there was no point stimulating tissue because the changes within the joint, even if we were to stimulate tissue, would still be a problem. So with Sorrel, we used a new implant that we have. Um, it's a polyacrylamide gel, uh, which is injected into the joint and it stays in the joint, enables movement again, and it helps the soft tissues uh, become a little bit more elastic. And it's a very slow uh, treatment uh, to, to administer. It took us a couple of hours. We have to painstakingly go inside every joint and inject every joint. But once we had delivered that implant into the joint and enabled the bone-to-bone interaction not to happen anymore, the pain was gone, literally gone. Um, and Sorrel came off all of her pain meds. Wow. So we had literally, it was almost like pulling the thorn out of your foot going, oh, relief. Mm. Um, so uh, Sorrel's owner went from almost making the decision to euthanizing her to unbelievable um, running around and playing ball and all the rest of it again. Yes. Yeah. And and it it really wasn't from my point of view. I mean, it was lovely, the elation to see that on the owner's face. You go, Greg, you've given us our dog back. Yes. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I don't look at the amazing side. For me, all it was, it's engineering. It's just a solution in our eyes. Yes. Um, so f- as far as I'm concerned, well, why would it not work? Because <laughs> I know what's going on. I know that bone and that bone are touching each other. If I put a wedge of stuff in between it, then they don't touch and therefore it's not going to hurt anymore. Um how the dog is and everything else, it's fantastic. I love seeing that. But from my point of view, sort of a, a purist in, in tissue engineering is you just got to figure out what's going wrong and then supply a local solution to it. So for me, it's not about upping the pain meds or putting something else in her food or changing her diet or another nutraceutical or something. Is 
those two bones were touching each other, sorted out. Yeah. So by putting the implant in, they didn't want to do surgery. They didn't want to amputate digits. They didn't want to pin them together or do things. They just wanted a non-surgical approach if it would work. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, you know, a lot of what we do, um, it's not 100%, um, but surgery is always an option. Yeah. We can always yeah. do something surgical. So in our eyes, it's always good to try this. It's less costly, less invasive. And if it works, then great. If it doesn't, then we can explore the other options. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it is. The, the video of Sorrel on, the, on your website, and we'll, we'll put a link onto that. It's amazing because the poor girl, she's hobbling in, in the first mm. you know, bits of the video. She's just hobbling along. And you can see she's, you know, when you've got a, a, a problem and you try, you try and walk without actually connecting with the floor. It's, it's that yeah. kind of, isn't it? It's kind of, oh, I don't want to do this. And then, my goodness, when she runs and you think, oh, it's just such a transformation. I mean, the, the owner must have been in bits because, I mean, my eyes filled up with tears. Because it was just like, wow, this dog, you know, the dog has her life back. It was amazing. It was brilliant. Yeah. Um, in, in, in practical terms, you know, um, because, I, you know, I, I want to give owners hope so that one of the things I think is important is that if, if people know there is hope, there is something they can do, there is a plan B, then they will yeah. go and get that help. It's when we, when we, hide our heads in the, in the sand is when we think there is no hope we just have to pretend this isn't there let's you know like you say with the bogeyman let's just pretend it's not there it's not going to come and get us well but if you know there is something you can do you can be proactive about this then okay yeah we'll go we'll go and get that help so in in practical terms what is the the treatment what's the process that the dog goes through the treating vet would obviously highlight the problem mm-hmm um, and then it's a, it's not a general anaesthetic or it, depending on what's going to happen, there may be a requirement for a general anaesthetic, but most of the procedures can be done under sedation. Wow. The material is harvested if it would be a stem cell, um, or adipose. Um, the cells are then, um, uh, isolated, collected, harvested, uh, and, or if it's uh, the plate-rich plasma, the plate's collected out of the blood, or if it's the situation with the gel, then obviously that's ready available. Um, and it's really nothing more than a single injection into the joint. So that's becoming a lot more proficient at this. Um, so the needle is inserted into the joint. Uh, obviously it's all done sterile, uh, without any risk and contamination or infection. And the material injected, and then that is it. Um, and in most cases, the amount of pain medication the dog is receiving, we hope to see that um, tailed down um, or in some cases and most often um, stopped completely. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. That's, I mean, wow. So the procedure takes probably anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. It's just brilliant because again, it's it's you, it's not it's something you can turn to, and as you say, try and and it's probably going to work. But the, it's not as invasive as surgery, so you're not even putting your dog through that to get this quality of life back. Yeah, amazing, it really is. I'm 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 so glad that I got to talk to you because this is just brilliant. What what do you see as the future for dogs suffering arthritis or with that tendency towards it? I'm hoping with greater education we can um, identify these dogs a lot earlier. So our understanding and management of arthritis is getting a lot better. We're all working to, together as an industry now to, to bring out different uh, management protocols and treatment protocols. Um, surgery itself is advancing. Some of the stuff they're doing with surgery is amazing. Um, 
but I do see surgery as almost where we've failed, then the only result is to, to surgically intervene. Um, and sometimes the, the only result, the, you know, way forward is surgery. Don't get me wrong, yeah, I'm not getting yeah. surgery at all. But when we're dealing with just arthritis, this is. So early education, early identification, um, and removing some of the things that cause it. So I know some of the work that Hannah's doing with canine arthritis management is the whereabouts and the, the environment the dog lives in could actually be the causative problem. Yes. So, you know, flooring, stairs, um, we might not think a, a step is very big, but if your Yorkshire Terrier has got to jump down uh, a flight of stairs to go to the toilet every day, mm-hmm. they were like me and you jumping off a 10-foot wall every day. Yeah. We, we kind of don't mentally see that. We go, oh, it's only a step. Yeah, but size proportion-wise, those joints are taking that jump down every day just to go to the garden. Mm-hmm. You know, some garden steps are a lot bigger than our household steps. It could be, you know, 10 inches of a drop. Well, to a little terrier, that's a, that's a significant. It's bigger than the, the, the dog itself. Yes. So that'd be like me and you getting out of bed, but the the place from bed to floor is is eight foot down. Yeah. I'm sure your knees and your ankles would not deal with that over no. years and years and years. <laughs> so so removing some of the obstacles that we have that cause these problems, I think, would reduce the the incidence of it. Early identification, early treatment. Um, Certainly, I like to see a lot more dogs treated with what we've been uh, putting forward because it is a way of treating the disease. And uh, we're very much about helping the dogs get back to a you know, normal life, athletic life. And the future for us will be going even further. I'd like to see a, a mechanism whereby we don't have to take uh, the cells or the growth factors or whatever out the body. Um, using things to actually upregulate or or turn things on or off uh, in a different way, but dealing with it locally still within the joint. So there's quite a lot of development yet to come in this area. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, you've you've done so much so already, but it sounds like you know you, you've got a job for for life there. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond me, I can tell you. <laughs> well, I I mean, thank you because it's. It's lovely. I, you know, I'm finding it comforting that there there is work going on like this. Well, you know, you are doing the work, but there is that hope. There's that light at the end of the tunnel. That yes, there are things you can do for your dog. It's not because, as you say, when I mean, my dog's a Labrador, and he's he's a happy, tail wagging, enthusiastic. Everything is wonderful. You know, twenty four seven for him. And he he on a Sunday he developed this problem with his front paw. On the Monday morning, and obviously we, we, we rang the vet, by the time I brought his collar in to say, come on, we're going out, and he just, he did not lift his chin off the bed. He just looked at me and just, and it was not him at all, and it was heartbreaking. And the interesting thing is, as you say, whatever their, their activity they enjoy is, it's, you know, it, it releases endorphins. We got to the vets, and he was like, oh, people to meet, okay. And... Yeah. Then he was, and you think, oh, you little monkey. But as you say, it was just he was getting his fix. It helped him. It distracted him. It sort of eased it for him. On that one, just as a, a helping yeah. point, we say this to owners all the time: take a video. Of, with, we've all got smartphones these days. Yes. Um, take a video of your dog in its home environment. So your dog is lying on his bed. He's been there for a little while. Turn the video on, and then just monitor. Go. Okay, come on then, out for a walk and just see his reaction getting off the bed and going towards the door. And then when you're out on your walk 
a few more minutes of video. That's really, really valuable information when you go to that and go, look, can you just watch that? Yeah. Right. I can see that. I can see where they're painful just by how he got off the bed and how he took those first four or five strides from the bed to the back door. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent advice. And I guess as well, as you say, be aware. Don't just think, yeah, my dog's going to slow down and and it's going to happen. Be aware. And, you know, if it can happen to a dog under one for the whole of the dog's life, be aware of, of what they're trying to to tell you and showing you with their body language yes yes absolutely i mean that's that's a, i i i love the fact that we can understand them that's that that sort of turns something on in my brain because when my dog um when he was very little he, he liked to be on seats in the car and he got onto this the front passenger seat and sort of i was leaning towards him pointing onto the down to the footwell and sort of saying get down get down and he turned his head away and I thought, oh, he's pretending not to listen. And then when a behaviourist said to me, mm, you know, it can be that he's, he's saying, you're stressing me. With Buddy, he would, he would have given in in the end and gone, oh, all right then. And I got out of the car and called him to me and, and it was, a, a, you know, the situation was de- de- eased. But with another dog, again, that could have been a real trigger, that leaning towards them and stressing them. So, you know, I do think in many ways it's vital we understand our dogs. But if it's... If we can actually make life better for them by understanding what they're trying to say, then it's, it's even more vital. Um, okay, so, Greg, where can people find out more about this? Um, if they've listened to you today and sort of been as inspired as I've been, it's been fascinating. Where can they find out more about this online? Well, they can go to our website, mm-hmm. Lupsala, N-U-P-S-A-L-A, Lupsala.com, um, or speak to their vets. Speak to their yeah. vets about options available. Yeah, Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you. As, as a non-sciencey person, thank you very much for being the scientist you are and for doing this you know, marvellous work. And it's, it is amazing. And thank you for that hope. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Huge thanks to Greg for his time and explaining the Nupsala process so clearly. Thank goodness for people like him. I hope you've found that as incredible and hopeful as I have. We have a link to the Nupsala.com website on the Dogcast Radio site, where you can also find a link to the video we discussed of Sorrel, for whom treatment was life-changing. Buddy is currently doing okay, but I am looking into getting a vet referral to Nupsala for him, so fingers crossed he can be helped to do even better. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Do you ever read a book and think, no, it shouldn't happen like that? Well, check out the latest innovation in romantic fiction, Macy's Choice, which puts you in charge of the plot as you make life-changing decisions on the main character's behalf. At the end of each chapter in Macy's Choice, there are always two options, and you choose what happens next. With over a million and a half words, that's over 5,000 pages, 256 chapters, and 128 different endings, Macy's Choice is an ebook you can reread again and again, making new choices each time to vary your experience to find love with each of the three heroes. To find out more, visit Macy'sChoice.com. That's M-A-C-I-E-S-C-H-O-I-C-E dot com or search for Macy's Choice on Amazon. We've all had the experience of being out with our dog and being charged by an off-leash dog. And in that split second you've got before the dog gets to you, you have to decide what to do. Well, here's some excellent advice to help you make that decision. 
Today I'm talking to Sarah Rushi. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm great. Good, good. Now, I saw your article, Six Ways to Thwart an Off-Leash Dog Rushing You and Your Dog, and I just it was brilliant, and I wanted to share it with people because... You go out with your dog and it's inevitable. You go to places where there are other people and dogs and not everybody has great control of their dog. And, and it's kind of that where you, you panic, you see the dog heading for you and then you sort of think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So right. to have thought it through and have excellent advice from you is, is just brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> what would, generally, what would your advice be to, to, to someone sort of who, who finds himself in that situation? So the first thing that I always tell people is that your first responsibility is always to your own dog. Yeah. So uh, your dog needs to feel safe, and they need to know that you've got their back. It's a really unequal interaction for dogs when one dog is on leash and the other dog is off leash. Since dogs use their bodies to communicate, it's so unfair if one has all of that space and all of that freedom to communicate, and the other one doesn't. I tell people it's kind of like if we put duct tape over your mouth and then shoved you into a room full of strangers and said, go, make friends. Yes. You know, they, they can't communicate as well when they're on leash. So my preference with my dogs and with my clients' dogs is always to say, if your dog's on leash and you get rushed, don't let the dogs meet. Protect your dog. Make sure that the other dog can't get to them. Mm. And so my first piece of advice is always to look for an owner. If there's an owner present, then I will see if the owner can collect their dog before the off-leash dog gets to my dog. And usually everybody's been in that situation. Usually the owner is far, far behind their off-leash dog, running after them, going, oh, but he's friendly. Mm -hmm. And that usually means I hope everything goes okay because I don't have off-leash control. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I have to say, you know, particularly with, with Buddy, particularly in the early days, he he didn't always have that good con- uh, that good recall so i was very vigilant i was very careful i would keep him on leash you know i would be careful i i would acknowledge that problem and say no i'm not going to put him in that situation where he's going to rush up to other dogs um right and then it's then you get the situation i've had two two uh, uh, lady with uh, two other labradors my dog's a labrador and of course with labradors you get this this sense of like well they're not going to do anybody any harm which is an over um assumption um and her her dog has rushed buddy and they're all over him and and the one was barking and she came over and she had the audacity to say it's because he's on lead and i just turned around and i said no it is because your dogs are off lead you know and it's for you yeah it incensed me and she knew i was uh, cross with her but you know you have to if you you either have to have excellent recall or you have to acknowledge that that is a gap, still work on it, but put other mechanisms in place, don't you? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I have a 18-month-old terrier mix right now, Pantolimon, hmm. and Pan is definitely not 100% trustworthy off-leash. So, yeah. you know, when I want to give him a little bit more freedom when we go to the park and we're walking, he's on a long leash. Yes. I have a 30-foot leash that he's on. If he's doing really well, I might let him drag it, but I make sure that it's within reach. So if he doesn't listen, I can always step on it. So I always have that control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I must say, again, I learned from Buddy. And when we got our second dog, um, Star, she had a long line, not an, ex- not an extended lead. 
and, and yes. then what you're talking about, sort of the long lead that you can sort of stamp on if you need to. And she never had that experience of, of me going or, or Jenny going, my, my daughter going, you know, come back, come back. And her having the ability to sort of not hear us and run away. And her recall right. was much, much better. So if that yes. is the way to it, go, it's isn't a it? huge difference. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we, we, we've, we've gone out. We're in this situation. The the dog yes. is charging us. We're there. We can't see an owner. You know, pushes come to shove. What's what's the first thing to try? So the first thing, like I said, is always to see if you can um, get the owner involved before you have to do anything. So if I see an off leash dog, the first thing I'm always going to do is um, call. You know, leash your dog. Mm. A lot of the time, saying my dog doesn't want to say hi or call your dog may not be effective. Um, So this is one of those cases where if I feel like it's necessary, um, I'll sometimes look at my dog and point and say, she's contagious. (laughs) Um, She's not. It is a little white lie, but it, it keeps the other dog away yes um if you say my dog's not friendly a lot of people go well my dog's fine and so they won't do anything but if they think your dog is contagious (laughs) i can tell you they will do everything within their power yeah stop their dog from getting to yours i love Um, that i actually yeah it is really effective yeah um i actually had that with my my older dog trout uh, Trout is very dog friendly. Um, she's tolerant with other dogs. She, I don't have concerns about what she would do if she were rushed by another dog, but I'm also not going to put her into that yes. situation. Mm. Um, so we had one winter where I was out walking Trout and a lady opened up her front door and let her two lovely, beautiful golden retrievers out the front door without looking. Mm. And of course her dog saw my dog and started to run towards trout and i called out she's contagious <laughs> and i feel guilty looking back it was hilarious but i also <laughs> feel bad this this poor woman it's the middle of winter it's icy and snowy and below zero and she runs out her front door in bare feet and her nightgown and tackles her two big golden retrievers <laughs> And grabs them, but you know they they didn't get to Trout. Yes, yeah. And Trout was standing there behind me the whole time, watching these dogs coming <laughs> towards her, and she didn't feel the need to react because she knew I had her back. Even yeah. if the dogs had come up to her, I I had the situation. She knew that I was going to take care of her. Yeah. And that's the most oh. important thing is that your dog is always the priority. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and in that situation, you didn't do anything horrible to the other dogs. You just protected no. your dog. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. And that's I, I do tend to kind of slowly scale up my response to the other dog, depending on how um, dangerous I think the situation is. So I'm going to react very differently to a dog who's um, obviously aggressive, who's rushing my dog, you know, with a hard stare and growling or snarling or silently, but in a very predatory manner versus a dog that's kind of lumping up towards us and (laughs) bouncy and playful. And it depends too on my dog. I've had dog aggressive dogs and I'm going to be much more careful with them than I am with my, my current two dogs who are very social. Yeah. Yeah, it is a horrible, horrible feeling when when you have a reactive dog, 
and yes. there's a very friendly, lovely little dog bounding towards you and you're going, please call your dog back. And they're going, he's fine, he's fine. And you're thinking, yes, but my dog isn't. Right. And you don't want to set that nice little dog up. No. You start to have dog reactivity mm-hmm. issues. That's how so many of my reactive dog clients start is that they had a really friendly dog who had a scary experience. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's, it's a minefield, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if if the, we you know we've looked for the owner, we can't see it. Um, the dog's barreling towards us. How? What? What can we do? What? You know, what step can we take again without being horrible to the the, the poor dog? Right. What can we do? So from there, there's a few different options. One of my favorite. I always carry food with me on walks. Mm-hmm. And as long as you don't have guarding issues with your own dogs, the dogs that you have on walks, I like to use the food to stop oncoming dogs. Yeah. So especially if you've got food that's easy to throw. So if you're bringing a tube of baby food with you on a walk, that's probably not going to be super helpful. Mm-hmm. But if you've got kibbles or um, small training treats or anything like that, I'll oftentimes take a big handful of whatever food I have with me and I'll toss it at the oncoming dog. And my goal in these situations is always going to be to startle the dog and just get them to pause for a second. Mm -hmm. So when I toss the handful of food at them, I'm aiming for their face. I'm not aiming to hurt them, but I want the food to hit them so that they pause for a second. And then most dogs are going to pause and look at what hit them and go, oh, food. (laughs) So if you've got those you know, really food-motivated, friendly, excitable dogs. Oftentimes, they'll stop to hoover up all the food, and that gives you and your dog time to get away. Yes. Yeah. And again, very kindly, and, you know, the dog's had a, a lovely thing happen to him, actually. You know, oh, right. manna from heaven <laughs> has arrived. Absolutely. Um, and there is a little bit of risk. If this is a, a common path that you take and you're going to see this dog every day, are you training them to approach you? Yes, because they approach you and get rewarded. But you're also training them to approach you and stop a little ways away and wait for good stuff if if you have good timing with this. Um, and most owners, when they see their dog eating something, will definitely hurry to collect their dog and see what's going on. So that if there is an owner present, also gives you another chance to engage the owner and say, you know, grab your dog. My dog's contagious. Yes. My dog doesn't want to say hi <laughs> or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that, I, I really do like that, that approach because, for example, sometimes my, my Labrador has had surgery. And, we, you know, we're taking a gentle walk and I don't want him jumped on. Maybe he's, I mean, usually he's had the stitches out by that point, but we're just taking some gentle exercise or maybe, you know, it, right. something's still mending. And you think, I really don't want him jumped on. And if you say to someone who is already being inconsiderate, could you be careful of my dog? Sometimes that's not going to sway them. But to say it's in your dog's own interest to keep them away is much right. more effective. It definitely is. Yes. I have the I have a fourteen year old foster dog right now. He's a little rat terrier named Bandit. Yeah. And Bandit loves other dogs. He would love to interact with a dog that came up to him, but he's really tottery on his feet. Yeah. You know, he yeah. he has some neurological damage, and it would be really scary for him yeah. to have another dog come up and jump on him because he already doesn't know where his feet are. And then if he were to get knocked over or knocked into, that's a really terrifying thing for a little old dog. And he's deaf, so he might not even know they're coming before he gets bowled into. Yeah, yeah. And and again, it's, you know, we have a, 
a duty, a responsibility to our dogs, you know, to you know, our own dogs or our foster dogs to, to look after them. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah. if... Again, we've, we've tried the nice approach of, of the food um, and you've, you've mentioned body language, which I have to say I have found very effective. We, there was one, um, we, we were sort of walking, I live in a quite rural situation and we were walking and two collies, two border collies came out and border collies are a wonderful breed. We had one, they're gorgeous, but they were quite determined and sort of coming out and I'm thinking, oh gosh, I really don't want this. And the posturing that you've mentioned, sort of that Yes. that stare and the, and the sort of look up look I'm very strong here I'm not messing about and they just said oh, yeah okay and went away if if you know we can employ that what about anything that we're carrying with us and I'm, I, I'm there's a specific thing I'm thinking of here but is there anything that we're carrying with us that we might be able to use absolutely I have a lot of reactive dog clients who actually carry an umbrella yeah, with the yeah. walks. Um, and specifically an umbrella that's the push button. So you push a button and the umbrella springs and pops up really suddenly. Yeah. Um, and that can be an easy way to startle a dog. And then it also provides a nice visual shield. So if you have a reactive dog, putting the umbrella in between the oncoming dog and your dog can be a great way so that your dog doesn't see the oncoming dog quite as much. And you can break that focus if you have a dog who's likely to react. Yeah, yeah. So again, I have a, a lot of clients who do that. Yeah, excellent advice. And again, it hasn't it hasn't hurt anybody. It's just like, oh, okay. And out of sight is often out of mind with the dog, isn't it? So they're really, really effective. I do like that. So again, moving on, maybe if we if we've thought ahead and thought, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to take something else with me that you know that can can be useful. What should we be taking with us? What could be effective? And what what are we allowed to take? So a lot of people advise uh, aversives to stop oncoming dogs, and I'm always really careful about that. So, for example, pepper spray is a a common piece of advice that I hear a lot. Mm. And my concern about pepper spray is twofold. First of all, pepper spray hurts, Mm. and we know that pain can increase aggression. Right. So some dogs will actually become, if you have an aggressive dog that's rushing you, some dogs will become more aggressive if you spray them with pepper spray because you've increased that aggression. It hurts. And so now they're even more likely to go after you. Mm. My other concern with something like pepper spray is that it may blow back in your face. So and what a nightmare. Right. I can't imagine if you have an oncoming dog, you know, you have a reactive dog and you go to pepper spray them. It blows back in your face and now you're incapacitated Mm -hmm. and there's a dog fight. Yes. (laughs) Worst of all worlds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I'm always really cautious about that. Um, There is a product that I really like um, and it's a product that's distributed by the Pet Safe Company. It's called um, Spray Shield. It used to be called Direct Stop, hmm. and it's a citronella spray. So what this product does uh, it is it works on multiple senses, right? So when you spray this spray shield, uh, it smells very strongly. It smells like citronella, which most dogs just really dislike. Hmm. Um, and when it comes out of the can, it hisses. And if it hits the dog, it, it feels cold on their face. So we have three different senses there. Mm. The other thing that I like about the spray shield is that it's not harmful. So it can blow right back in your face. It's not going to incapacitate you. 
And if you get it in your eyes or your dog's eyes, it's buffered. It's it's not going to cause damage. And that's yeah. really important to me. Yes. That said, it is very effective. Uh, I've had to use Spray Shield to break up dog fights, and it will break up anything but the most severe aggression where nothing except for physically separating the combatants would work. But it will definitely stop most low to medium level um, dog fights, which is the vast majority, 98% of dog fights, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, are, are usually just disagreements. Yes. Yeah. So... I carry this spray shield with me anytime I'm going to be around dogs. Uh, I have an extra can in my car that I keep in my car. I have a can on my training bag, uh, my bait bag. I have a can in my winter coat. You know, I, I just always have it on hand so that I've got that backup if I need it. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. And again, as you say, it's not harming the dog. It's deterring the dog, but not actually right. harming. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um and it's something that is quite effective. I, I know there was a study, um, I believe it was actually done by the Premier Company when they they were the first ones who distributed this. And this spray was more effective than pepper spray at stopping trained mm. attack dogs, wow. which makes me so sad for the, the poor trained dogs who yes. were, were tested on this. But um, it definitely is effective without the dangerous side effects that something like pepper spray would have yeah yeah and after all usually you know it's no fault no fault of the dog that's barreling up to you he's either intended right. you know he's meaning to be often friendly you know he may have been let down by his owners they haven't trained him they haven't you know whatever's gone wrong it's not fair to take it out on that dog is it no absolutely so my goal is just to make sure that my dog knows that i'm going to keep them safe and protect them and hopefully not make the situation worse for the off-leash dog either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, what about, because one of the instincts that kicks in is if your dog is small enough to pick up, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to pick my dog up. Um, right. What, what do you, where do you stand on that? What do you think of that? So that's a tricky situation. Mm. The, the issue with picking up a small dog is that sometimes you make them more enticing to the off-leash dog, but it's also a safety issue, right? If there's a big size difference, you've, you've got more risks with that interaction. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes I'll advise people to actually um, place their dog somewhere safe. And there's a few different options here. It kind of depends on your environment. So you need to look around a little bit and see what's, what's going on, what's nearby. Um, but I've had people pick their dogs up and toss their dog over a fence if they were being rushed by an aggressive dog. Um, I've also had clients who've um, placed their dog like in the bed of a pickup truck or up on the hood of a car um, in an emergency. And I actually even had one client who uh, used a garbage can. (laughs) There was a garbage can right there. And she picked her little dog up and just plunked him in the garbage can. And and then the aggressive dog couldn't get to him. Yeah. So I, she kept him safe. That yeah, was the important absolutely. thing, that he was safe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, needs must. And in that, you know, you've got seconds to, to respond right. and to do something. That, that's quick thinking, isn't it? Definitely. It yeah. was great. And that's something that if you know that's a potential, if you've got a small dog and you walk a, a neighborhood route where you know there's sometimes off-leash dogs, especially off-leash aggressive dogs, just kind of scope out your walking route and think to yourself, 
how would I keep my dog safe here? You know, what's nearby? Is there a fence nearby or a garbage can or, you know, what, what could I use that's in the environment already? Yeah, yeah. Really good because, as I say, you know, I'm I'm a real panicker and sort of I I will freeze and kind of go, oh my goodness, and just freeze. So as you say, to, to have thought it through, and then when that panic comes, you know, you've got more chance of your brain actually kicking in and 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 choosing the right course of action, haven't you? Definitely, and that's actually a really good point: is to practice any of these strategies. So there's a lot to be said for muscle memory. And if you practice an action over and over, you're more likely to use it in a situation of panic. So practice these things when you don't need them. My reactive clients oftentimes learn emergency U-turns where they turn and go back the direction that they came from. You know, if you're out walking and you see something up ahead that's going to be a problem, you just turn and go back. Yeah. Um, and we had them practice over and over and over. One of my reactive clients actually had a great story. Her dog is very, very dog aggressive. Mm. And she was bringing him to the vet. Uh, they walked into the exam room at the vet clinic, and she had already checked and made sure no one was there. And as soon as they went through the doors, there was a great big Great Dane on leash right oh. there checking out that hadn't been there uh, like a few seconds yeah. before. Yeah. And she said her mind just went blank. And the next thing she knew, she and her dog were back at her car and she was feeding her dog a bunch of treats. So she and she later talked to the vet staff and they said she and her dog both, you know, she opened up the door. She and her dog both just whipped around and turned and went back the way they were going. And both of them had that muscle memory. And so what could have been a really horrible dog fight ended up not being a problem at all because they would practiced it so much that that muscle memory just kicked right in and before either of them could think and react they were back at the car and her dog was eating cookies and everything (laughs) was great oh excellent excellent that's really good but again that's that's a responsible owner isn't it and maybe we say you know a tired dog is a happy dog maybe a responsible owner is a prepared owner absolutely yes practice tossing your handfuls of treats and practice picking your dog up and putting them somewhere if that's something that you have a small enough dog to do if yeah. you have a great game that's yeah. probably not a good option for you practice getting out your spray shield or using your umbrella or whatever you're planning to do yeah yeah the other point that you you cover as well which which is you know very relevant is usually the dog won't be that interested in you but if the dog redirects his attention to you you know you've got your dog out of of danger and then you suddenly find yourself in danger what should we do then that's a tough situation because there's kind of two different options and you you need to read the dog a little bit but if you are say being attacked by a dog you know worst case scenario you want to protect yourself so i would usually call for help um Mm. if at all possible you can certainly utilize your spray shield or something else like that or see if you can get yourself out of that situation. But in the the very, very worst case scenario, I tell people protect your head is the most important. So you're you're going to want to have your arms over your head and definitely protect yourself if you get knocked over, kind of roll into a ball, um, really protect yourself. And again, call for help. Yes. Yeah. And again, as you say, with that one, practice, Buddy and I used to be part of the Kennel Club Safe and Sound team. And part of that advice to children particularly was if you you, you stand still and you put your arms sort of um, across your 
chest you sort of cross your arms across your chest um, yes. and so you're not you're not panicking waving your arms around and if you do get knocked on so that's that was the tree position if you do get yes. knocked over onto the floor you you go into the the rock position so you roll up yes small, yeah yeah and again practice it absolutely and practice it with your kids yes so that they know what to do if a dog comes up to them and you know it works for friendly dogs too being very still and not engaging yes um they will then oftentimes go away faster than if you were engaging with them yeah yeah i, I, I like all the, the psychology involved there. you know you've thought things through from a from the, the dog's point of view and you, you're being very considerate of the dog and i, I do like the, the outwitting thing there as well I, it just reminded me of um, a national trust property here had very delicate curtains that they didn't want people to touch and they put a sign up saying you know, please don't touch the curtains and people carried on touching the curtains right. so they put a sign up saying please wash your hands thoroughly after touching the curtains. And my goodness, nobody touched the curtains. You know? <laughs> oh, that's great. I mm-hmm. love it. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you motivate. I mean, it's like our dogs. We spend a lot of time working out how to motivate our dogs. It's how to motivate other people and other dogs, isn't it, then? Definitely, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me uh, sort of what, what your working life involves. What, what kind of um, dogs and sort of what, what um, situations do you find yourself in there? So uh, I own Plausibilities Dog Training, which is a dog training company um, here in the U.S. Uh, in Minnesota. And we have, uh, there's about 20 trainers who work with me. And it's just a fabulous, fabulous team. I'm really lucky to have such great colleagues that I can bounce ideas off of (laughs) and uh, work with and learn from. And so the business itself, Plausibilities, really covers uh, a lot of aspects of dogs. We do everything from basic manners to severe behavior issues to dog sports. As far as what I do, I mostly do behavioral work now. Hmm. So I'm a a certified professional dog trainer, and then I'm a certified uh, behavior consultant for canines. And so I take uh, behavior cases that are a little bit more severe. Oftentimes I work um, off the referral of veterinary behaviorists Hmm. and work with serious anxiety and aggression um, and phobias and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine it's very demanding and challenging, but very rewarding. It is, definitely. I get to work with some of the very most committed dog owners who really, really, really love their dogs. Um, And that's probably my absolute favorite thing about my job is the the great people that I get to work with. Yeah. Um, Because there really are some just amazing dog owners out there who are doing everything they can to help their dogs with really some severe issues. Yeah, yeah. And I guess as well, when, when the problem is severe... And you manage to, you know, have breakthroughs and, and in some cases solve it or get it to a manageable, a manageable right. sort of um, um, stage. I mean, you really have some, done something life changing there, haven't you? Definitely. Yeah. For multiple lives, uh, yes. obviously for the dog, but then for the people, too, that that dog's life intersects. And for most of these people, for all of their future dogs, it's yeah. oftentimes a, a very different way of looking at having a dog in your life after you've worked with a behavior consultant so every future dog that comes into their life then gets the benefit of the lessons that that first dog taught them 
which yeah. I think is so cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you're right, you do, you get your first dog and you, you, you learn certain things as you go along. And then with your second, we certainly found that, oh, yeah, we've learned that and we've learned that. And when you do it better and then with your third, yeah, we learned this. And to be, you know, having said that, they're all different. I always think every dog is a different adventure. It may not be the adventure Definitely. you signed up for, but it's different. <laughs> you know oh absolutely yeah, yeah every every new dog teaches me something new they're yeah. great great teachers yeah absolutely absolutely is there anything that you'd like to say about dogs in general or the the problem of an off lead dog uh, rushing you that we haven't covered oh that's a great question <laughs> you know as far as dogs in general one of the the biggest things that I would tell everybody is to give your dog choices. And that's really important as it relates to off-leash dogs. You know, give your dog the choice about whether they're going to have to be in a social situation. You're going, I've got this. You don't necessarily have to take on all of these social situations. A lot of dogs really like it when we take that pressure off them. Yeah. But just in, in day-to-day life with dogs, I think we forget sometimes how few choices they get. You know, mm. we, we control so many parts of their life. So giving them opportunities to make decisions and make choices, I think, is huge for our dogs. Yeah. Um, and it could be something as simple as, which way are we turning on today's walk? Are we going to go left or right? And letting them choose which path. Yeah. Or, you know, which chewy do you want today? Would you, would you like the dental chew or would you like the bully stick? And let them choose which of those two. Little things like that can make yeah. a really big difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's lovely to hear from from you. You know, from someone with with the authority of knowing about dogs and having worked with dogs, and in you know, in your case, you know, quite se- with dogs with quite severe problems. But because so often we have it drilled into us, that drummed into us, that you 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 must be completely in control and you must you know make every decision. And you j- take it all away from the dog, and that's taking a long, long time to dispel that attitude. It is. Yeah. So it's yeah. lovely to hear that from you. Yeah, and you'll see dogs love to make choices. Once they realize that they have that power and they can choose, oh, they get so excited. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, it's funny, but for a long, long time with our dogs, you know, I would, if, if if I thought they wanted to go to the toilet, I would open the door and then I'd stand and look at them and I wouldn't give them a command and I'd kind of more sort of with body language as you would to another human, sort of open the door and look at it and sort of motion it like, well, you can go through if you want to. But you don't have to. And and I felt a bit daft, to be honest, a bit indulgent. And you think, oh, probably not doing it right here. But it's 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 so nice that to hear from other people who've gone, well, no, I, you know, I've, I give my dog choices as well. And it's not abdicating all responsibilities, not letting them take over or anything like that. It's just empowering them just a little, little bit, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's lovely. That's such a lovely way to just invite them here this is an opportunity for you to go out if you want yes um i love that you do that that's that's beautiful (laughs) wait so because sometimes my labrador will go and stand at the door and it's sort of the door out to the hall but it's also where the near where the treats are and i'll oh yeah yeah and but he's very good because i go and open the door and i stand in the hall and look at him like was this what you wanted and he'll just flick his eyes up you know from me to the treats back to me (laughs) to the treats you go oh you little monkey you want some treats don't you (laughs) He doesn't always get oh, them. I love, yes. Right. That's beautiful, clear communication. Yes. And I mean, that's why we have dogs in our lives, yeah. right? We we yeah. want that relationship. Yeah. So the fact that he feels comfortable going, you know, I, I'm 
feeling a little peckish right now. Yes. If you wanted to give me a treat, I love that. That's- yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's That's very, great. very good at communicating, but he's... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been really great talking to you, Sarah. Where can people find out more about pausability online? Probably the easiest place uh, would be to go to our website, and that's pausabilitiesmn.com. So pausabilities is spelled pause, P-A-W-S, and then the word abilities, and then M-N for Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Com. Um, so they can find us online. They can also find us on Facebook if they search Pausabilities Dog Training. We have a, a great Facebook page. We try to post educational articles on there every day. So you should be able to find lots of great information to help you enjoy your dog. Excellent. Excellent. Because again, there's so much information out, out on the internet that sometimes it's, it's bewildering. Where can we find authoritative, kind, knowledgeable information? And that's one place they can, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me, and I hope we'll be talking again soon. Great. Thank you so much, Julie. If you do get rushed by an off-leash dog now, you have some strategies to choose from. Thanks to Sarah for sharing her wisdom with us. And we have the pausabilitiesmn.com link on the Dogcast Radio site, as well as their Facebook link too. That's it for this time. So until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on Julie at dogcastradio.com When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What's a dog's favourite pickup line? You must be my backyard because I really dig you.